Hello there, friend. This is the Kind Mind Podcast. I'm Todd Fink, and I've recently returned from traveling in different parts of the world. Once again, I feel like I am forever changed. I visited Dubai and saw some old friends, and then made my way to Bali, Indonesia, for our first mindfulness retreat with the help of Mind Curate in Chicago, and it was a big success. And I hope to be a part of that and offer that annually. So please stay tuned for details about that in the future. And you can also let me know if you would be interested because there are always limited spaces and they fill up pretty quickly. But it was great. When I got back, I went to California. I was in Malibu to officiate a wedding for the first time in my life. I went online, got the two-minute certificate. And uh, it was such a privilege to oversee the joining of the hearts of a couple beautiful friends of mine, Bethany and Spencer. So shout out to them. And uh, there's so much more to share about my experiences abroad, but I'm going to save that for a future episode, which will be all about the positive effects of foreign travel. In the meantime, you can follow the new social media pages that I started where I'll be sharing more travel stories and photos. I also plan to start a series called The Books That Changed My Mind. There are many books that help shape my philosophy of life, and I'm happy to introduce you to at least some of those. Keep in touch for this and other events and everything at facebook.com forward slash Michael Todd Fink or on Instagram at Michael Todd Fink. I want to take some time to introduce this episode after the age of anxiety. The basic premise here is that as we look back into the past, the world was much more dangerous. War, atrocities, disease, famine, predators, insects, and so on. And it's not certain that the world won't get more dangerous again up ahead with nuclear weapons or artificial intelligence gone wrong, climate change, and other future existential threats. For example, there's a supervolcano below Yellowstone National Park, and it erupts on average every 600,000 years, and I believe we're getting close to 700,000 years. So it's due any time. When it blows, it will probably wipe out all life from there to London. However, it's not really a serious worry for anybody. Even climate change is mostly too abstract for people to invest any emotional energy on a daily basis. And rarely will I encounter an anxiety patient who reports climate change as a primary stressor in their life. So we may be living in a window of opportunity where those of us who are safe enough can meditate and transform our lives. And I focus on the possibility that after the age of anxiety, we could find ourselves in a more enlightened world. Not another age of fear, but inner and outer peace and more cooperation based on understanding and evolving through anxiety and putting ourselves in position in that way to build a better world for everyone. Those of us who are safe enough to do this can practice and spread wisdom. By most metrics, the world is safer overall. For example, crime, especially homicide, is in long-term decline. People are more likely to die of old age than violence. Malnutrition is down from 50% 100 years ago to its lowest rate in history, 13%. 
For the first time, more people are obese than hungry. And similarly, infectious disease and extreme poverty are markedly down worldwide. Of course, there are poignant exceptions to all these positive safety trends. I try to tackle the question in this episode, is stress and anxiety growing in America and in the developed world? It appears so, but there may be some hidden variables. It's easy to blame technology like internet and social media for an increase in anxiety, but it's hard to study this because of the ubiquity of social media, so researchers can't easily create paradigms where people have no knowledge or exposure to these apps and study the effects when you get introduced to them. Perhaps it's possible that these apps merely reveal more of what's already going on inside. In any case, overall, it's estimated that nearly two out of three Americans are stressed out. And if you visit a site like stressinamerica.org, you can find reports of interesting statistics, such as 92% of Americans believe that stress does negatively impact our health, but only 31% believe that stress negatively affects their health. The most common anxiety disorder is called generalized anxiety disorder. Only 13% of patients with this disorder report anxiety as their chief complaint to their primary care physician. They would more likely be seen for headaches, insomnia, or other symptoms. So there's also a mind-body gap. Another anxiety disorder is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, develops or can develop after a trauma, which is an experience of powerlessness, including violence. It's characterized by terrifying flashbacks, intense fear, panic attacks, and really can be a nightmare of a condition. And females are twice as likely to develop PTSD after a trauma. Increases in social anxiety and phobias, as well as OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, have been observed, and OCD is characterized by intrusive recurrent images or worries coupled with compulsive behaviors or mental acts aimed at preventing those feared outcomes. These conditions can all have a strong genetic component And we all share in the legacy of fear that we've inherited from our ancestors. One way to think about nature versus nurture or genetics and environment is really genetics is like stored environment. Many others have personal traumas within their own life to heal from. And a helpful base philosophy for recovery and self-empowerment is that it's true we may not have caused our problems, but we have to solve them anyway. In this talk, I lay out some of the core themes of anxiety, like control. And it's not so much that lack of control triggers anxiety, but not having control, and then really wanting to have control. That's the problem. Also, with expectations, I mentioned how they can set us up for frustration, but I forgot to include what to do instead. That's try to develop flexibility, and and also know that there's a difference between expectations and goals. So we can still have goals without the idea that they should or ought or must be achieved in only this way and only this time frame. And I also emphasize the efficacy of deep breathing in coping with anxiety. You can find help with that on my website, 
You can listen to guided breathing meditations and build a daily practice. Utilizing the audio players there, there's more than a dozen guided meditations, and I hope to add more soon. You can find that at michaeltoddfink.com studio. That is the Kind Mind Studio page. Finally, please consider hitting the share button on your phone or mobile device and gift one of these episodes of the Kind Mind podcast to specific people in your life that you think could benefit from these topics, and it will also help to keep these conversations going. Now, on to this episode, and with your support, may this recording help shed a little more light on the path to a world after the age of anxiety that's not as fearful, but more kind and compassionate and peaceful and harmonious. Thank you. When I think about emotions, it's sort of like this science lesson that you may have heard about the stars. When we're looking at the stars at night, many of them are already burned out and we're just seeing their light traveling across the universe to reach us. That's what emotions have come to feel like to me, like a window into our ancient past. They're like algorithms of our ancestors from prehistoric times until now. What do I mean by that? Well, an algorithm is a code, which is a set of rules to solve a problem. So our evolution has programmed these codes into us. And I'm not saying it's exactly like an algorithm. It's like an algorithm. Based on all of the experiences of our ancestors, the most effective responses got encoded into our genetics. And so we are all hardwired to worry to some extent. We're all descendants of worriers. Those who could worry really well would have survived in the prehistoric time. You could imagine a situation 100,000 years ago where two people are looking for a place to stay and they come to a cave and one person's ready to just go in and the other one says, whoa, 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 we don't know what's in there. And this guy says, hey, don't be so negative. (laughs) (laughs) Always assuming the worst. And he rushes in and gets eaten by whatever's in there. So he gets weeded out by natural selection, and the other guy is our ancestor. (laughs) (laughs) Then when we think about other negative emotions, how could those have been good? I've been thinking about this. Something like jealousy seems to largely have no function anymore. It can only contaminate relationships and create lots of trouble for us. But still it comes sometimes. Or envy. Somebody shows that they're doing well, especially on social media. They got the dream job that you always wanted. They got the success that you had always worked so hard for but never earned. Or they're going to the place like Bali or Dubai. (laughs) And somehow I can't just feel happy (laughs) for my friend. It like somehow takes something away from me. 
And we could step back from that and look at that and, and realize that doesn't really serve me, but still it comes up. So I think it's like an algorithm in the sense that when you're on any of these apps, you get all these ads and the ads have the character of you, but oftentimes you know that it's not really what you're interested in. Like my friend Maureen was saying that she was looking for a bamboo toothbrush and found it. And then she couldn't escape bamboo toothbrush <laughs> ads for weeks. So if someone else saw these ads, it would have the character of Maureen, but it really wouldn't say anything too deeply about her. Similarly, we may be in the market at one point for shoes, and then you'll be inundated with shoe ads. And even though you already got your shoes, you may really like this ad that comes up. It's like, oh, I really would look good in those shoes too. So you click on it just to see. And then what happens? It's like, yeah, it's like when you feed a stray cat and then say, okay, be on your way, little buddy. That's not the end of it. So if emotions are like that, then you find yourself in a situation and based on all of the data of our past, the algorithm scrolls through that code, all that data instantaneously, and then that computation gives you a energetic response. And if we follow through on that feeling, it's like clicking on the ad, then it's bound to return, even if we don't think it's suitable or helpful. But it's so hard sometimes not to act out the urge that comes with that energy. And anxiety is this feeling of worry, fear. It's in the legacy of the fight-flight instinct of our ancestors. So it propels us to defend ourselves or to escape. And since modern times aren't as dangerous, there's often nothing to really fight with. So it usually leads to some type of avoidance, which would be more in the flight side of the fight-flight response. And by avoiding or isolating or canceling that interview or postponing that work, it's like clicking on the ad and then it comes back. And since anxiety has this effect of shrinking your comfort zone, it gets to be a problem for for many people. It's the most common mental illness in America. There's some different statistics out there about whether or not it's increasing, <clears throat> but estimates show that maybe 40 million adults in America have an anxiety disorder, maybe 300 million worldwide. And there's different types of anxiety disorders. Just because you, we may feel anxiety also doesn't mean that, that there's a disorder. So, I was thinking about other feelings too, what, what could be good about them. Even depression, I was thinking, by looking at other mammals, winter tends to make us more depressed here because it's cold and it's darker and all that. But if you look at the bear, it hibernates in winter. And that could be seen as like an extreme form of major depressive disorder. <laughs> now we don't, necessarily do that, although when people have major depression, they do. But just that urge to withdraw and that uh, decrease of energy levels could actually help us 
cope with the environment in the past. To be in this part of the world long ago with freezing cold temperatures and snow and all of your food would have to be stored in your cabin or wherever you're staying. And to be in that environment and just be full of energy and full of life and spirit and vitality and just ready to take on the world would probably get you killed if you couldn't control that. That would be cabin fever. <laughs> Even something seemingly only negative like that could have had some benefit. Now, any of these feelings, when they go to some extreme length, they create a disorder for us, like an anxiety disorder. And that prehistoric time all the way up to just the last century was largely appropriate. Anxiety probably wasn't even something that was identified because when your environment is so dangerous, the chief complaint is not the racing heart or all of the symptoms, symptoms of anxiety, it's the problems in the environment. And just 100 years ago, we had wars, world wars beginning, the leading cause of death was the flu or pneumonia. So every flu season, you have to really be worried about whether or not you're going to die that year. I think 1919, the average life expectancy for males was 39 years. That's a pretty dangerous world. So what we're talking about in terms of the age of anxiety is a pretty short window. The phrase age, age of anxiety first appeared in a long poem in 1948, W.H. Alban. Won a Pulitzer Prize for this poem, which about some people talking in a bar about the shifting culture of the industrial age. And then Alan Watts talks about the age of anxiety in one of his books in 1951, The Wisdom of Insecurity. And throughout the world, they talk about it as like an American problem. The highest prevalence of anxiety disorders are in, in the United States. But it could be that it's a sign of technological progress. Like when the environment is safe enough, it affords you the self-awareness to realize what's going on inside. So maybe in some of these studies that suggest that anxiety is increasing around the world, maybe it really means that people are taking a look within and they're seeking out treatment. Increases in treatment doesn't necessarily mean the disorder is increasing either. So I don't know. I'm just saying that there's lots of things to consider. But, but it's pretty clear that by many metrics, we're in a safer time than we've ever been. And that means that we're in a, a window of opportunity where we can make sense of these algorithms, so-called algorithms of our emotions, and we have to make some conscious changes to be able to speed up the evolution. Because 20 some years or 30 years of relative safety is not enough time for evolution to undo millions of years of programs to deal with the environment. Sometimes I think that many of our emotions don't serve much of a purpose at all anymore. I don't think I mean to say that we need to dismiss them altogether. But I think through meditation and mindfulness, we can learn to not be totally dictated by them. We can take a step back and be aware of the changing energies, just like weather. And we can make conscious responses to these programs within us. 
just like we would with the weather. We look at the weather forecast every morning on our apps just to plan and prepare our day. If we had that sense internally of what was happening with our mood and our impulses and our urges and preferences, we could also plan accordingly. And by not clicking on these emotions every time they come up, we start to recode. And then I think, at least in my experience, the continuous practice of meditation seems to be like a shortcut for this evolution because it improves all the areas of the brain that are involved with managing these feelings. So one part of the brain in particular that's linked to anxiety disorders is called the amygdala. It's a small almond-shaped structure deep in the brain. And MRI studies show that this is enlarged in people that meet criteria for an anxiety disorder. It's called hypertrophy. I don't mean to reduce it just to brain science because I don't think that tells the whole story of anxiety. And by using a term like the age of anxiety, I think that may be a little insulting too, and I don't mean it to be, um, because everybody's experience with anxiety is so deeply personal. It's not just about our ancestors, it's also about all the struggle that has happened in our past. And if there's a trauma in the past, that really changes things too and complicates the way we experience emotions and how we respond to stress. But we find ourselves in this time where so many people have an anxiety disorder. So we might as well recognize that and talk about it and then explore what is involved with this experience. So I keep saying that this is a window and that's because this may not continue to trend. This safety that we're experiencing, like poverty is down in the last 100 years from 50% of the planet to 13%. And that's been a steady trend. And violence is down. I think some centuries ago, there was a good likelihood that the way you would die would be from violence. Now people are more likely to die of old age than from violence. So these are positive safety trends. But our body's internal experience is not compatible with these external changes. So there's many metrics that are showing it's safe. But, but then we have new problems on the horizon that may mean that this is not going to continue indefinitely. I think the main one is climate change. So when I think about like the fires in California, my parents live in Sonoma County, and two years in a row they had to evacuate their home. Fortunately, the fire never touched their home, but it came to their neighborhood the first time around. And the second time around, last, last fall, the, the smoke was so bad that Sonoma County and Marin County had the worst air quality on the planet for over a month straight, worse than like Beijing. And people were wearing masks to work. My parents wore masks when they eventually came back to their house. Two years in a row, and the fires were in the south, and, um, and even the rich weren't spared from some of these uh, disasters. Most of Malibu was burned down in the Woolsey fire. And I think Miley Cyrus' home was burned. Not Kim and Kanye's. 
their $60 million mansion was spared because they were able to hire a private fire force to defend their house, which ended up protecting the whole block because if it got their house, it would have gone on to get the rest of the block. So they inadvertently saved several houses. But this is probably going to become a real thing at some point without serious changes in the way the world operates. And the rich are all along the coast. The real estate along the coast of California is some of the priciest in the world. People ask me all the time, when, when do you think the, houses, the housing prices are going to come down in California? I, say, I don't think they're ever going to come down until climate change becomes more severe because there's only one California and everybody in the world wants to go to California. When I'm out in California, it's like, this is appropriately named the Golden State. It's so nice. But it's not nice if, if the sea levels are rising and there's fires every year and so on. And in Sonoma County, there was a flood just recently. Sebastopol, which is the next town from Santa Rosa, you had to take a boat to get out, like Nebraska. In Nebraska, 75 cities were in a state of emergency. Thousands of people displaced. Now, for the first time in history, over the last 10 years, more people are displaced by climate than by conflict. There are more, I guess you could say, climate refugees. Could we call them climate refugees? More climate refugees than Syrian refugees. And so maybe as this unpleasant picture unfolds, it could lead back to the prehistoric time where resources are not abundant. Everybody doesn't have easy access to food and water like we have now. And then those algorithms are going to be appropriate again. Then it wouldn't be the age of anxiety because our chief complaint wouldn't be our racing heart. It would be the lack of water or the lack of resources. So we're in this unique window where we can do something about the way that we feel. And if we transform the way that we feel now, I think that could put people in the condition to be able to cooperate to solve these problems. When everyone's dealing with their own private worry and nightmare, I think it's very hard to collaborate. And something like climate change, even though we're seeing these catastrophes growing, it's still too abstract for the whole community to come together and understand what needs to happen. But it reminds me of this story that one of the monks that I'm close with told me from a campaign of a chief minister in India. It's a true story about his village. He said when he was growing up, there was a farmer, a watermelon farmer, that had annually this one day where all the children of the village could come and eat as many watermelons as they'd like. But they needed to collect the seeds and they would spit the seeds into these buckets and then the farmer would use those seeds to plant for the next harvest. And he would give them, he would offer them the best watermelons, the biggest, juiciest, most delicious, and when he retired and his son took over the farm, he was telling his father, look, watermelon day is great and it's nice to be able to give back to the village, but you keep giving them the very best watermelons. Let's just give them the, the melons that aren't so nice and that way we can take the good ones to market and we can make a better profit. We can increase our profit. And since the son is now in charge, he makes that change. And now on watermelon day, the kids come, but they get the worst watermelons 
or the ones that are, you know, oddly shaped and so on, so that the sun can take the best into town. Well, one generation for a watermelon is one year. And after seven generations, the sun and the farm had no good watermelons anymore. Because they kept planting the worst, and slowly, slowly, he sold out the future for the present profit. And the chief minister was telling this story and relating it to education in India. But when I heard that story, I'm like, that's like climate change. We're selling out our future by taking all these resources and putting all this carbon into the atmosphere now for quick profit, for quick development. But then the future will have to pay for it. And it's too abstract for people because it's hard to think about, say, the 10 billion people that don't exist. It's like imagine somebody telling you, we need to think about all the people that don't exist on Mars. We'd be like, what are you talking about? It's hard to think about taking care of people that are very far away. When we didn't have all the communication that we had, it would be really strange to be concerned about people in another country. Now we can see it and we can travel there within a day and we feel a sense of connection to that. We have a hard time though with compassion across distance and we have a hard time with compassion across time. And future generations are further in time, so far in time that it's difficult to feel something for that. It's, it's very abstract. And the patients that we see in the hospital, very few are there because they're worried about climate change. Very few are worried about future existential threats. It's more about what's going on in the body and the stressors in the home or at work. There's another scenario about how things get more dangerous. There's a philosopher from Oxford. He's the director of the Future of Humanity Institute. His name's Nick Bostrom. He's on a lot of podcasts right now, and he's really interesting. He has this theory called the vulnerable world hypothesis, and he gives this analogy of an urn. And out of this urn, we pull these ping pong balls, and they're of three kinds. They're either white, which means you pull out a white ping pong ball. It's a technological breakthrough, and it makes everything better. There's no downside. Then there's some gray ones, like maybe guns. Guns helped some cultures that created them hurt others, so there's good and bad that's coming from them. And then there's black ones, and the black ones only downside. There's no upside. And eventually we'll pull out one of these ping pong balls that will doom the human race. So an example could be like when the atomic bomb was created and Fermi and Oppenheimer, whoever was all involved in the mathematics to do it, it could have been that it wasn't so hard to do. I mean, imagine that after they figured it out, it turns out all you need is like two magnifying glasses and a microwave and anyone can create an atom bomb. Well, then we probably wouldn't even be here because every time you see something like a mass shooting, instead of doing the mass shooting, they would do one of the atomic bombs. Automatic weapons is the way that an average person can hurt the most people in a given time. But as it turns out, it takes the cooperation of the entire state to even get close to detonating an atom bomb. That's fortunate, right? 
that ping pong ball came out and it's gray. It's very destructive, but the nuclear energy has really helped some societies flourish. And it just so happens that it's not so easy to do in terms of its destructive power. Maybe we'll pull out another ping pong ball and uh, maybe something with like artificial intelligence. But Nick Bostrom and other philosophers are saying at some point there's going to have to be some safeguard in place as more and more ping pong balls come out. Because we're only a decade or so into the smartphone age. Now things are exponentially speeding up. And he's proposing, it needs to be considered at some point in the future, what would that safeguard be? Would it be an AI that monitors everybody in the way that our phones sort of do? Like if you think or talk about anything, not think yet, but if you talk about anything, every time you download an app and you click allow access to my photos, allow access to my microphone, the phone is recording everything we're talking about. So you're going to get a lot of ads for ping pong balls, <laughs> ping pong tables. But maybe it would have to monitor and flag for anything that's potentially an existential threat. And I saw on one thread, somebody's joking, people are joking, saying, there's no way I'm going to let an AI bot monitor everything, everything I do. And this other guy chimes in, he's like, well, people already believe there's a conscious being that's monitoring everything you do, and they're cool with that. <laughs> so what's so bad about an unconscious AI monitoring everything you do? That's the picture as, as it looks from this point of view. Now I'd just like to talk about what are some of the themes related to anxiety. And by understanding anxiety and by practicing meditation, you can help your own evolution. And it will go a long way to contributing towards peace in the society, peace in the world. But one of the major themes related to anxiety is control. So when I'm on a plane, in the past I used to have a lot of anxiety. And I would sit by the window, like I needed to sit by the window, so I could listen and watch the wing and look for the sounds and tires and things to happen. I guess that was my way of trying to control the uncontrollable. And I would even like hold the arms when we take off and land, like that helps the pilot land. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't until I practiced a lot of meditation that it just started to fade away, but I, but I could then see the theme of control. And it's not even that a plane is dangerous. Even though we had these couple tragic crashes, it's more dangerous to be in a car. But if you're driving a car, ordinarily you don't feel as much anxiety as if you're sitting on a plane. But if we really break this down further, so there's like a million people in the sky at all times. And how many people die in this large city? Not many. There's probably a 10-year window where the safest place on earth during those 10 years would have been in the sky. And when you're flying into, say, O'Hare, and if you could see like a mortality risk chart being graphed as you go about your business, it probably spikes the minute it lands at O'Hare. <laughs> because you're in Chicago now. <laughs> And when you step off the plane, it goes up a little more. And then when you get into the Uber or whatever car you get into, then it really spikes again. But meanwhile, our anxiety is coming down. 
because of the illusion of control. And if you think about what happens on a plane, you know, people say, well, what about turbulence? Well, what happens during turbulence? You know, the plane's bouncing a little bit. But does turbulence actually harm you? Rarely. I, I experience turbulence a lot on, on flights, but I closed my eyes recently as a passenger in a car, and I've compared that to my flights. And I really feel like, overall, I bounce more in the car and get shaken up a lot more in the car, but my anxiety doesn't increase in the way that it does when I'm bouncing around 35,000 feet in the sky. <laughs> it's not that it's more dangerous, it's that there is a remote possibility of death and that's all the brain responds to. It also works in the inverse. When does everybody buy a lotto ticket? When it's like an exorbitant amount of money. When it's $1.5 billion, oh, we better get in this, you know? Like your chances increase or something. And as if 200 million isn't good enough, you know, all the other times. Now that it's 1.5 billion. When our office did it, we had to assign a contract that we would share it. If our and I told the person, we don't have to worry, we're not going to win. I don't, I'm not signing it. But we don't understand what our body's doing. We're unconscious of so much of what our body's doing. And if you take these symptoms of anxiety and you reframe them, it's not even anxiety. When I'm playing basketball and I'm sweating and my heart's racing and my blood pressure's up, I'm having a great time. But if I woke up the next morning in that same physical condition, I'd be calling 911. <laughs> The context matters, and that's why I say the age of anxiety matters, because these same symptoms in a different time won't even be symptoms. And that's what we have to think about and, and prepare for. So that's control. What do we do about it? Radically accept that you don't have control over hardly anything, but certainly things like on a plane, we don't have any control. And we don't really have much control in the car either. You can't control what any of the other drivers are doing. You just don't think about it. And because you don't think about it, because of the illusion of our control, because there's a wheel that I get to touch, then we find that we can be more peaceful. So radical acceptance isn't just a thought. It's an actual shift of attention from what you don't have control over to something you do. And that's what we're doing in the car. We're not obsessing over what other people are doing. Is this next car going to be texting? I hope not. Oh God, oh God, here it comes. Okay, thanks. thank God they weren't. <laughs> Life would be really miserable. But that's what I was doing once upon a time on a plane. And then I just decided, just let go. That's what acceptance is partially about, is letting go. It's also about allowing things to begin. It comes from the Latin word ad capere, which meant to receive. So when you get a gift, if you accept the gift, it means you receive the gift. When things are happening, we have to practice allowing what has to happen to happen. And then on the back end, especially with emotions, you have to allow it to go. But we struggle both allowing something to begin and we struggle letting it go afterwards. There's an analogy, I don't know if it's true, but, but it's said that people have trapped monkeys in Asia with jars that have a narrow neck and a wider base. And inside of the jar, there's some food that the monkey would want, like some nuts, and it puts its open 
paw in there, once it grabs the food, the fist can't fit back out of the bottleneck. And it keeps pulling and pulling, and it won't let go. They call it a trap, but it's not really a trap. But the monkey's thinking, this is mine. This isn't fair. And if the monkey lets go, there's some upfront disappointment because it doesn't have the food and then has to go get that food. Similarly, think about all the things we hold on to. Like, I had that. I had that opportunity or I had that relationship and it slipped away. And we won't let it go. We won't come back to the present moment. We won't focus on what we have control over. The second one is perfectionism. Another theme in anxiety, it affects young people a lot. Millennials are the most anxious generation, according to different studies. But what is perfection other than fear in disguise? So perfection tells me this record's not good enough that our band is making, and I don't want to put it out. Well, you can't start with your seventh record, <laughs> and as much as I would like to. The problem here, I think, is that perfection one is an opinion. It's not something that we could all agree on. If we wanted to get a perfect pizza for all of us to share, we wouldn't be able to agree. Because mine wouldn't even have cheese, so that you're, everyone's going to be like, that ain't even pizza. There's that subjective component to it. Perfection is an illusion because life isn't the noun that we make it out to be. Life is more like a verb. It would probably be more accurate to say we're lifing instead of we have a life. Think of a noun like a country, like the United States. The United States has a birth. We might say the birth is the Declaration of Independence. But is it really the birth? Weren't things happening even before that that was birthing the United States? People say explorers discovered America. How did they discover America if it wasn't born until 1776? So these are just arbitrary points. Really, America is an event. If you say it's this land, this land was here before America. So then it can't just be a thing. It's a process. Life is the same way. Life is a process. Life is unfolding. We're lifing. And so, like Andy Warhol said, while people are busy judging whether or not this piece is good or not, I'm busy working on the next one. And finally, we got into that habit as artists in, in the band we just go on to the next one. Whatever you could have done better, do it better next time. And in that way, we don't have to be stuck. We don't have to worry so much that what I'm about to do or say has to define me. But unfortunately, the public doesn't understand that. And this is probably one of the complications with like public shaming that on the one hand feels like it protects society, but on the other hand, it like creates this terror also that anything I do wrong or make a mistake can define me for the rest of my life or my career. And it doesn't have to be a big thing. Like people are terrified of just saying something stupid. Public speaking is the number one fear. Through exposure therapy, I've lost the fear of public speaking because I have never gotten injured doing it. <laughs> so I find that in reality, it's relatively safe. 
<laughs> but this connects to the social anxiety because historically, if I spoke up and I said something and you, you all didn't like it and you're my tribe and then you're like, to hell with Todd, then I'm going to die. <laughs> Quite literally. Now I just find another group of friends. Know, but, but it doesn't feel that way internally, especially not for teenagers at school. If this group of friends does, doesn't want me, who, who will want me? Or if my family doesn't accept me, who will accept me? And we hear that all the time in treatment. Well, if my mother won't listen to me or my father won't show up in my life, then who will? And it's really hard to keep knocking on other doors. You know, this poet I really love, Tagore of India, said, if I can't go through one door, I'll go through another door or I'll make a door. And that's what you need with this process, is the realization that these things aren't dangerous. It's not dangerous to be unaccepted. But you do have to keep opening doors. And when we realize that things aren't dangerous, we can recode. So I think the way around perfection is to replace it with process. And though other people may not be on board with that yet, artists realize it. Everyone else can worry about whether or not this is good or not, and I'll be on to the next thing. And that's how we have to try to engage in our own life. Whatever I was falling short on, I'll do better next time. And I think this actually is how we find deep, intrinsic satisfaction in life. It's not about making no mistakes. It's not about being flawless or having a really smooth anything, presentation. It's about having flaws and correcting them. It's about that process. So like when I hiked this volcano in Lombok in Indonesia, if they said, we can just take you to the top by a helicopter, we'd be like, well, well that kind of takes all the fun out of it, doesn't it? <laughs> you know? Having difficulties, having shortcomings, having imperfections is part of the process. And we can learn to love that. But if we can't accept imperfections in our art, in our work, how will we accept them in ourselves? I talked about this in the episode Endangered Aesthetics and the Future of Beauty artists kept editing out themselves in the craft, in the music, till music was perfect, flawless, no mistakes, no errors in time. And I think this is why today people aren't really that interested in players. When you think of all the artists, they're singers. But the players, 10, 20, 30 years ago, people could We'd have posters of all the, the guitarists and soloists and horn players. They knew all these people. Mm -hmm. Coltrane, Miles Davis, and piano players. And that was popular music. Now it's, it's not because it's been perfected and you don't even need the players anymore. The samples can do it all and it can be perfect. But if our art is going to be perfect, then how will we accept ourselves? Last year, when I went to get a smoothie, sitting in my car for a minute and I saw this girl was coming out behind me sit down on a bench with her smoothie and I was like oh that's nice someone's actually going to sit down outside and be present with their drink 
but she was trying to get a selfie to post <laughs> that here I am with the perfect smoothie. So it was like everything changed every snap of the of the photo. Like this this beaming smile and like <laughs> smiling up to heaven and holding the smoothie next to her face and then bring the phone back and then this frown came over her. And then again <laughs> And no joke, I watched this go on for like 15 minutes. <laughs> and then she gave up and left. And it didn't seem like she got the right photo, the perfect selfie. And I thought, like, how strange this is. I mean, it's, it's both humorous and it's really sad and illuminating all at the same time. Because before the cell phone, before the smartphones, we didn't even have the opportunity to reject ourselves for 15 minutes straight. <laughs> I wonder, what does that do to the brain to say, nah, 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 eh, for 15 minutes? So for every good selfie that comes into our newsfeed, there's some place where there is dozens and dozens of rejected selfies. So just remember that. For every perfect photo of your friend, there's 99 others somewhere in the recycle bin all the times they rejected themselves. So this perfectionism creates a lot of chaos. And then the third one is expectations. Expectations are sometimes very subtle. And they seem like they help us. But as Mark Twain said, I have no expectations, therefore I'm never disappointed. And I don't know if you really practice that, but it sounds pretty good. We think these expectations somehow get the results that we want. But even if you do X, Y, and Z by the book, the mythical book as a parent for your kids, will that give you any guarantee that the outcome will be favorable? That they won't? face challenges or make mistakes? I don't think so. So how obsessed should we be with the outcome that we crave? In some spiritual texts like the Gita, it teaches or instructs to renounce the fruits of labor. So it says something like, you have a right to your action, but you don't have control over the harvest. If you think about this in terms of gardening, we may do the exact same kind of work for all different seeds, but the spinach seed is going to give you a result in three weeks. The apple seed, 10 years. And we look around and we say, I did that much work. Why am I not getting the result? Or why am I not getting the success that this person's getting? I mean, sometimes that would be like this plague in my mind. I've worked so hard in music. How did this person get the record deal? And why did they pass on us? And things like that. But there's no, seemingly no rhyme or reason to it. But it's like planting seeds. And they may all give fruit, or they give different kinds of fruit, though the work is similar. And some seeds don't bear any fruit. That's why when you're preparing the garden in the spring, you plant way more seeds than you expect to have plants for. 
because you know some of them won't yield anything and some will come soon and some will surprise you. So expectations are very subtle, but it, it manifests when we think that somehow we can manipulate the outcome because we deserve it. And it's subtle in, and it can sometimes take the shape of if-then rules in the mind. If this person does this even one more time, then, then I'm through with this friend. Or if this significant other doesn't call within the next hour, then that's it. I'm going off. And so it doesn't change whatever that person's going to do or not going to do. But it certainly creates anxiety for you in the present moment. And you may think, well, what are we going to do if we don't have these if-then rules? Like, will people just walk all over us then? Well, I mean, I would suggest that if you already have an if-then rule for your significant other, you already have a problem. <laughs> you already have something to talk about. And I, I, I noticed, like, I would... This happened to me in relationships a lot when I was younger. One time in college, a sweetheart of mine and I had an anniversary coming up, and I wanted to take her to a concert... <laughs> I'm sorry, this is funny to reflect. <laughs> it wasn't funny at the time, though. And the artist that I'd seen the most in college was Ben Harper. He's just great for college kids at the time. So I'd seen him several times. I loved those concerts. I, I had all his records. But Christina had never seen Ben Harper in concert. So I thought, okay. I'll take you to a concert that's happening around our anniversary, and that'll be a nice way to share something that I care about with you. And then on that was like Friday night, then on Saturday night, do something that you want to do. And she lived in Philadelphia and I lived in DC. And like maybe a month before our anniversary, she got invited to a Ben Harper concert by another guy at school. And she went. And then she tells me afterwards, she's like, oh, and, you know, I, I saw Ben Harper earlier tonight. And so I'm really excited because it was awesome. You're right. And, I, and I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And I just lost it. I had, I think I had a panic attack. <laughs> and I was just like shouting on the phone and my heart was racing. I couldn't form coherent sentences. <laughs> Like, I had this plan for so long. I bought the tickets. If you were just going to go with whatever guy was going to invite you out, then I wouldn't have gone to all this trouble. It was, it was supposed to be special. How could you do this? And, uh, you know, we got into this big fight. And she's like, why is it such a big deal? And I canceled the concert. We didn't go to the concert. We got through it, but we broke up shortly after that. <laughs> and when, when I look back... It's like I had none of the tools that I cultivated in the decade following. I didn't know that there was even an inner life you could even turn to. It felt like my back was against the wall. There's nowhere else to look but out. And now, like, I know through meditation, there's a whole world inside. And just by looking in, even before you do anything else, even before meditation, just to take your senses and point them inward would already get you halfway there. There's an MRI study that shows if a person 
can even name their feeling, which requires they look at themselves, the activity in the amygdala will reduce by 50%. I mean, this is amazing. Why? Because if you have the luxury to do introspection, there must not be any predator in your immediate environment. And the brain knows that. This is how gratitude helps people fall asleep and reduce their anxiety. Because if you have the luxury to count your blessings instead of your worries, then you must be in a pretty safe place. And the brain knows that and it starts to relax. But I didn't know there was anywhere I could look within. I had very little experience at that point with meditation. Now I know there's a whole world to explore within. So many things you could direct your attention to. And in this way, anxiety is like a school of fish. It's like there's racing heart, there's palpitations, there's perspiration, there's tightness in the chest, there's tingling, there's a headache, there's neck pain, there's churning in the stomach and butterflies and so on. But like I said, with the exercise, any one of these symptoms would even be considered a symptom if you change the context. And then there's this racing breath, this arrhythmic, fast-paced, shallow breathing. And it's like a school of fish because what do these small fish do? They all swim together to appear like something more threatening than any of them actually are. If the other fish could look carefully and see, oh wait, this is just a bunch of small fish, they could pick one of them off. And if they picked even one off, the whole school of fish disperses. And one fish that we can pick off in, in terms of taking care of ourselves is the breath. You just focus on that one small fish in this school of fish and the whole thing starts to dissipate. Once you start to breathe deeply, you activate the relaxation response and the parasympathetic nervous system and it turns off those fight-flight changes. So anyways, that was a little bit about expectations. And 10 years later, 10 years later, I'm, I'm in a relationship that was not long, but the girl I was seeing at the time decided that she really wanted to be with this other musician who was really famous at the time. They got together and they became family. And I think the version of me that got so upset 10 years ago would have just totally lost it. There would have been multiple themes colliding, perfection and expectations and control, loss of control. But by that time, I had already been to India and already been on long retreats and I genuinely felt happy. I was able to really support that and we all became friends and it led to an opportunity for our band to play with that band and tour together. And it just led to many good things. And that's when I also realized that something like envy just doesn't serve any purpose for me. All it could have done was close me off to future opportunities and collaborations. We can change our response to these emotions and then you can access more equanimity. This isn't about not feeling anything. This isn't about trying to be happy either. Because when you strive to be happy, it implies that you're not. There's a paradox with trying. I think that's what Yoda meant when he said, there's no try. When you try to fall asleep, you can't. 
When you try to stay awake, watching a movie or read a book, you start dozing off. <laughs> when you try to be good, like at a talk, you get nervous and you struggle and you forget what you were supposed to say. But how hard do you have to try to talk to your friend when you're sitting in a booth for dinner? It's not like you go, well, I have my notes here. I'm supposed to... <laughs> and I brought a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> And people say, you know, you're just, you know, really good. You're so comfortable public speaking. And I'm like, I'm not public speaking. I'm just having a conversation. Nobody's chimed in yet. (laughs) (laughs) And the last one, attachment. Not attachment like connection, but attachment like a type of dependence. So when you take the phone away from the kid, they have ton of anxiety, getting too dependent on people and things. Because there's no safety tied up into it like it was in prehistoric times. So when things change and relationships change, if we practice non-possessiveness with our mindfulness, then we'll be able to navigate through those shifts. And if you remember that Life is a process, like I was saying before. All of these themes, they're overlapping, they're interrelated, they're not totally distinct from each other. But if you understand that life is a process, then there is no thing to be attached to. All of the atoms and cells in our body are are coming and going, and all the while we talk about me, or we use the word I. But it's really a process. That's the same with relationships. The relationship is not a thing. It's an event. Like, where does my fist go when I start waving? These aren't things. And I think that will help with attachment. And it will help people to be able to appreciate whatever is happening in the process because it's all fleeting. It's all ephemeral. There's no substance underneath it. The past is totally gone. You can't find it anywhere. All you can find is the residue, which is the present moment. And what's happening today will be gone tomorrow. It's almost as if, you know, you step back and it's like, where is the world? It's really more like a dream. Of course, it's like a dream. I mean, once we're dreaming, we create everything all over again. Where is all the people that were in my dream when I wake up? How do I create distances in my dream? How can I look at the stars in in a dream and see worlds that are millions of light years away and it's all happening in my bed? So much of this is just the projection of mind and attachment is very similar. This is probably one of the most important practices in any spiritual path. There are communities built around non-attachment like monasteries and and ashrams throughout the world, that's where people can come together in theory to support each other in letting go and having a satsang, which means a community, a culture where people together are not so self-interested. They're not trying to hold on to things. It's not that you totally reject anything either because that would create a different kind of problem, but just letting things be. Some of these hierarchies, though, continue throughout life. It's a toy for the child, but it's a car for the adult, you know. And 
material pursuits have supplanted some of the intrinsic life satisfactions. There was a 40-year um, a study of college freshmen. Financial success being important has doubled since 1960, and developing a meaningful philosophy for life has significantly declined. We also get attached to the roles that we play. You see an athlete having to retire. It's a big struggle to retire at 30. And we all can look at that and say, but you're a millionaire, so you have nothing to be stressed about. But there's an attachment to the role. And if the role is all that person has known and you take that away, yeah, it is like a child losing an important toy, but it's, it's going to require some reinventing of sense of identity. Emotion comes from the French word émouvoir, which means to stir up or to move. So the emotions you can think of as a compound word, energy and motion. It's trying to move the cognitive system in some way in response to the environment. Almost everything we do is out of some sense of dissatisfaction. You have to feel uncomfortable that you haven't eaten for a while so that you'll eat. If you feel totally at peace with everything, then you're not going to eat. You won't do anything. Just sit there. And some people, when they realize inner peace, they do just sit there for a while. And sometimes they have to be rescued by people, <laughs> like I talked about last month in the case of the boy Ramana, who had to be saved because he was abiding in his own inner peace and he wasn't taking care of his body. The energy to move, and depression might move you inward, and when it becomes extreme, it's a disorder, but a little sense of being withdrawn might have been helpful to get through the winter. And summer gives us more enthusiasm and vitality, and that would be when you need to go out and make things happen. In the past, you'd have to really start to work hard to rebuild again for another season. Jealousy would have been appropriate when there aren't enough resources. So somebody comes and just takes your family or takes your food and you're cool with that, then you're not going to survive. Jealousy would motivate that person to do something about it. Go take it back. And anger in the same way. And fear, similarly. Fear gives you an instant jolt of energy and adrenaline to become stronger, to be faster, and it moves the body in some way. But now we may say, well, you know, sometimes there's still danger, so don't, don't we need some of these? Well, there's not the same kinds of danger, like climate change may be a danger, the flooding is dangerous, but the fight-flight instinct isn't necessarily going to be helpful for these kind of dangers. And I was thinking about when the pilots couldn't correct the plane on the Ethiopian Airlines flight that was going down. I don't think a fight-flight instinct and they're on a flight, but I don't think, <laughs> I don't think that that kind of adrenaline rush is going to solve a complicated computer problem. So many of our dangers can't really be dealt with with emotions in the way that they could in the past. Now, like one of the leading dangers would be cancer. And when you get the diagnosis of cancer or there's a a sense that that could be a possibility. It creates a ton of anxiety for, 
for the patient and for families. And yet there is not necessarily an immediate threat to your survival. So when the body changes and then all of this adrenaline and cortisol starts rushing through you and the endocrine system is firing, it's not like that can give you some answer. We actually need to be able to turn that off so we can just think clearly over days, weeks, maybe months, maybe even years, and trying to solve the problem of how to be healthy. That just takes clear thinking and intelligence. And so in this way, some of these emotions that are just trying to move us were to just deal with the immediate dangers. Now our dangers are very complex. The emotions may not be helpful. When I was looking at the definition of anxiety, and it talks about fear and worry, and we may have anxiety and not a disorder, so these descriptions will often say, like, it's normal to have anxiety if you have to give a speech. It may be common. I wouldn't say it's normal, because giving a speech is not dangerous. <laughs> and understanding anxiety and emotions in general can really help us. And, and I made lots of mistakes in music everything you would be afraid of, everything that you would think would be why it's appropriate to be nervous, and then nothing happened. <laughs> you know? Sometimes people didn't even know. I made massive mistake at this one concert in Bloomington, Indiana. I was like playing the total wrong part, then, I, then it just snowballed until I forgot the words, and, <laughs> and I finally just go, I gotta start over, everybody. We're, we're taking this from the top. And they didn't care. They're like, yeah, okay, whatever, you know. And I was like, oh, this isn't, this isn't a big deal. And it's, that's it, it's over. It was probably a really good thing that that happened to me because I could really absorb that it's not dangerous. And then I know, like, I don't need that. And I can breathe. That's not to say that some of these sensations won't come, they come. But you don't have to suffer with them as long when we're more mindful. Thank you. So he's saying, could you elaborate a little bit more on the collective scale with anxiety and maybe how meditation can help this shift? There is a statistic that there is more anxiety in wealthier countries than within the countries there's more anxiety among the poorer people. There's that kind of interesting dynamic at play. If you're already in a wealthy country, and you're in a lower socioeconomic status, you have a major challenge going on. If you're in a country that's not as affluent, there's less anxiety. Meditation is going to strengthen the prefrontal cortex, which is behind the forehead, specifically the ventral medial part. And this dampens the signals from the amygdala. It has like a volume knob. And so when that gets turned down, there's more equanimity. This is like a shortcut method for the entire collective to work on this together by meditating and committing to your own meditation practice. You, you'll transform your brain in this way and you don't have to trim the tree branch by branch. Just hack away at the base. If everybody starts to buy into this practice, which it seems like it, it is trending, that will be probably one of the primary ways that we'll be able to make the most out of the age of anxiety. 
is it means that there is a window of opportunity where it's safe enough for so many people on the planet to be able to do introspection. In dialectical behavioral therapy, we talk about doing the opposite of what your urge is. And that's how we can reprogram these algorithms. So depression makes me want to go home. If instead I go out and I go for a walk, then I can work through that feeling and I can recode. If you know that it's safe in this new environment, then you can challenge yourself to go, even though the, the anxiety urge is telling me to isolate. So you can use opposite to, a, to emotion, think about what that urge is, do the opposite, and work through it. And then depression. This is the hardest one for all the emotions, I think, to do opposite to emotion with, because for everything else that would make you feel lousy, the doctor is going to prescribe rest and sleep. But when you do that with depression, you create like a petri dish to grow the depression. And when every cell in your body is saying lay down, to do the opposite is really hard. But I think it's easier to do with anxiety. When anxiety is saying, eh, don't do this, or cancel it or postpone it, we can do it. And the more we stretch our comfort zone, the better off we'll be. As soon as we avoid something, the comfort zone gets smaller. People with anxiety can recall a time where you could do something that you don't like to do now. And then you put it off, or you said, can you do the shopping? Because I don't really like being in that big supermarket. And then something else becomes the edge of your comfort zone. So everybody has anxiety, it's just how wide are our comfort zones? You take anybody to public speaking and most of them will exhibit anxiety. And then when you avoid, the comfort zone gets smaller. And an anxiety disorder gets so small that leaving the house becomes triggering. And then leaving the room becomes triggering. And then getting out of the bed becomes triggering and whole life is impaired. So breathing and opposite to emotion, I think are, are really practical skills. Some people find it helpful to visualize putting their worry on a shelf. I'll come back to that later. And some therapists instruct their patients to try designating a worry time. Because when you try to worry, the paradox of try kicks in. And people are like, well, what do you want me to be worried about? <laughs> also, if you practice meditation and mindfulness to feel better, you'll create anxiety. You can't, you can't use mindfulness to save you. I mean, because then you're trying to push something away. Mindfulness just is. Just breathing just is. If you try to get rid of your anxiety, it's like trying not to think of a pink elephant. So we just do it. We just breathe with no goal in mind, no expectation in mind. And then Reduction of emotions is the byproduct, but when you try to get rid of emotion, you stir it up. It's like trying to make rough water smooth by hitting waves with a frying pan. So you just let go. That's what Alan Watts said in one of his lectures. And meditation is really the art of not doing. Because breathing is already happening. What, breathing isn't something that we do. <laughs> no, it's doing. And if you stop and just notice that you don't have to be doing anything. You don't always have to be doing something. Just rest in awareness, that's the practice. But the mind will get up from that pillow again and again and again. 